What comes to mind when you think of a college town? Old brick buildings covered in ivy, some narrow tree-lined streets with little bookstores and coffee shops. That's because the biggest public universities are generally in small towns. Towns that share a few common demographic and geographic features. A lot of them are more than 150 years old, many in areas that are rural. Often, the towns around them are very dependent on the university economy, and often, even with the financial prop of being a university town, they are still economically depressed. This situation accentuates a kind of class system when it comes to campus housing. Students who can afford, or whose parents can afford, the bright, shiny, new, multi-story, off-campus apartments, and those who turn to the cheaper option. Old, converted homes, some better kept than others, that have been divided up into as many living spaces as possible, so that they can be rented to students. Some of these houses are owned by upstanding landlords, but some are not, and many are in towns where there is no vigilant code enforcement. Let me paint a picture for you. The house is more than 100 years old. The wiring is, too. It's the old knob-and-tube wiring from the late 1800s, early 1900s. It's definitely not equipped to handle six or seven students, each with three or four electronic devices they plug in each night, plus a TV, plus a microwave, plus a fridge, a washer-dryer. There's someone living in the basement, someone living in the attic. Even the living room has been made into a bedroom. There is just one door in the front and one in the back, and you have to go through the kitchen to get out. I know exactly what you're talking about and actually lived in one myself, too, an old house that was converted into three apartments, and someone was up in the attic. And they did have an exterior stair, but I can tell you it was not up to code. No way, no how. And, um, you know, that was always the cheapest apartment, but it was a, a scary situation. Scary, but very common situation. You know, I, I've seen both uh, really, really good landlords and really terrible uh, landlords that you wonder how they can uh, sleep at night. The worst inspection experience I ever had was a, uh, a young student who happened to be an international student had um, rented a crawl space in a house. So he would go in the house, go down a little hatch in one of the closets into his crawl space. Wow. Yeah. And here they've given him an um, extension cord, a uh, uh, space heater, believe that. <laughs> this He lived there for like six months and was happy as a clam until we got our um, spring rains and it flooded out his apartment. And the landlord, I just remember sitting there thinking, you know, at a meeting with the two of them. And I'm like, how could you, how could you do that? From the University of Florida's Breckner Center for Freedom of Information, I'm Sarah Gannam, and you're listening to an episode of Why Don't We Know, the podcast that dives deep into data and comes out with real stories. Well, actually, I started in the Building Safety Division. Janet Maupin is a director of the Center for Campus Fire Safety, and she's also a fire marshal in a college town, Champaign, Illinois, home to the University of Illinois and had an interest in fire safety. I think stemming back to when I was in um, uh, freshman in high school, our neighbor's house 
burnt to the ground on um, Thanksgiving Eve. And then campus fire safety. How did that become something that you began to focus on? Well, just by the nature of our uh, the makeup of, of this community, uh, we have so many rental units in, in uh, the city of Champaign. Um, and the, the way the students come to the university anymore is pretty much that freshman year, they're in the university housing. So they're in the professionally run state-owned dormitories. But then that um, sophomore, junior year, they're going out into fraternities, sororities. And then that senior year, it seems like everybody wants to have their own apartment for more privacy and independence. So um, as, as they transition through their college careers here, we, we kind of follow them through all their different housing options. And I mean, I, I also attended a Big Ten school. I know a little bit about the campuses. I'm sure there is not enough student housing for students to stay in the dorms all four years. So they're kind of choice or no choice, like they have to go find an I'm, alternative. I'm exactly. Uh, people don't know how to shop for the right housing situation and, and get those safety features built into the building. So typically you can, for the same amount of rent, you can find a um, a nice quality apartment in a building that is fully sprinklered, has um, full fire alarm um, systems, and all the belts and whistles and and good exiting and things like that. But people um, tend to uh, still rent the um, the old, you know, third story converted attic because it's private. Because you can get more or seemingly more for your money. Exactly. But if they'd really comparison shop, um, you're really not getting more for your money in in this market. I, at least when I was a student, which was, I guess now like almost 15 years ago, but it was, it was like a, it was a significant difference and you knew you were getting a, a lesser quality, but you kind of like, you put up with it cause you were 20 and whatever. But I also felt like the landlords were just like, I mean, some of them I'm sure were great. And some of them were just like, whatever, you're a student, like deal with it. And there wasn't that same, I, I'm sure to their own credit, um, Students probably didn't take care of their houses very well either, right? But, like, it wasn't the same as if you're 30 and renting an apartment. You when you're 30 and renting an apartment, you notice things like smoke detectors and points of egress. But common sense would tell you that someone should be looking for those things, even if it's not the student renter. Someone like a code inspector? Code inspection reports, deficiencies, violations, those things are a matter of public record. But as you know from listening to this podcast, public records requests are not always answered in a timely manner. Even the faster ones can take weeks to come back, certainly not the kind of turnaround time you might need if you are applying for an apartment. So for this episode, we thought we'd put ourselves in the shoes of a student or parent who has just a few hours, not a few weeks, to search for code inspection reports. We searched the websites for local municipalities in more than a dozen major college towns, first trying to figure out if the safety records are easily available online, and then if not... 
Hi, my name is Brittany Miller. Hi, my name is Tori Whitten. With a phone call follow-up to the code inspection office. Hi, um, I'm doing some research for a podcast. To see how we could get the information. It definitely varied from place to place. Brittany Miller and Tori Whitten did the research and reporting on this. What I was looking for, ideally, was to find that not only were inspections happening regularly, but that those inspection results were publicly available in a database, where as a student, I could put in the address of a house I'm considering and find out instantly if it's had any code violations. In reality, that was not the norm. Tori, was that your experience too? It was. Of the five towns I researched, only one had a database. It was here in Gainesville. But the other places failed to provide any kind of straightforward documentation of code violations. There was no single database where a student or parent could look up an address and see if a specific place is safe or not. For example, in Athens, Georgia, I couldn't find any straightforward answer to their inspection processes. I actually went through their county ordinance, typing Control F, looking for words like inspection and rent because they didn't have that information readily available. So you were using the find function on your computer to try to locate keywords because it was so hard to track down this information? Yes. It could be in there, buried somewhere, but it's definitely not easy to find. And we both called these towns where we couldn't find this information easily online to make sure we weren't just missing something. But most of the time, we couldn't even get a call back. There were a few places I was actually impressed with. College Park, Maryland, for example, had a website that looked like it was built to cater to students. What do you mean by that? Well, I was partly judging the ease of this process. As a student myself, I am not familiar with some of the language of code inspection. In some places, the language was very hard to decipher, especially when I had to go into the town ordinances because there was no dedicated website for this. I don't think that would be easy for someone not accustomed to reading these laws. So basically, if the information is so difficult to find or difficult to understand, it's unlikely that it will help people. Right. Another important point. What we were searching for were code violation reports. Those typically happen when someone makes a complaint. But what about routine inspections? In about 70% of the places we looked, it was very difficult to figure out if rental properties are routinely inspected the same way that, say, restaurants are inspected. Routine inspections would make sure that smoke detectors are turned on, fire exits aren't blocked, sprinklers are working, stuff like that. And it's not likely that a student renter is going to file a complaint with the code office saying there are not adequate fire exits. Right. And so according to what we found, I think it's very likely that a home could go years and years, tenant after tenant, without a routine inspection. This is one issue where public records and accessibility cross over from public universities to private ones too, because we're talking about municipal safety records gathered from nearby towns, and those are public documents no matter what. So even though I started this episode by talking about how many large public schools are particularly vulnerable because of their geography, many private schools are in similar positions. Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York, for example. It's about 90 miles outside of New York City. The town is 220 years old. Housing data shows the majority of homes there were built before 1939. 40% of properties are small rentals, meaning converted homes. In January of 2012, one of them caught fire, trapping and killing three of seven people who were inside. They still never figured out what caused it. 
My name is Bob Fitzsimons. Um, I'm a local 638 steam fitter. I live in on Long Island. Bob Fitzsimons' daughter, Carrie Fitzsimons, was one of the students who died that night. I've worked all over the island and the city. Steam fitting is pipe fitting, and one of the parts that we take care of is fire sprinkler. How ironic is that? Yeah, I've spent probably a third of my career installing sprinklers in the city, in schools, in all around. Like the majority of converted rental homes. There was smoke alarms in the house, no fire sprinklers. The state of New York says that any time five unrelated people are living in the same home, it's considered a boarding house and should have fire sprinklers. According to a Poughkeepsie code inspector who I talked to on the phone, the 99-year-old home that Carrie lived in was zoned as a single-family house. No code violations resulted from the fire. It's just it was not set up the way it should Code-wise, it, it wasn't registered as a multi-person dwelling. The NFPA, the National Fire Protection Association, a nonprofit organization that writes a lot of the fire code that is later adopted by states and towns, suggests that when a single-family house is converted into apartments, it should be updated and sprinklered. The NFPA also says it's best practice to retrofit sprinklers into any building that has three or more units. It's not considered in most places. Those best practices are just a suggestion, not a standard. The Poughkeepsie Town Code Inspector told me that when the owner of the house where Carrie lived rebuilt, he did add sprinklers, but the home that burned down did not have them, even though it had been modified to add more bedrooms. I'm upset with myself that I didn't have code enforcement check out the house before beforehand. Never even thinking about it. Bob Fitzsimons and his wife started a nonprofit called the Carrie Rose Foundation to help spread awareness and push for stricter laws. After Carrie passed away, extremely grief-stricken, of course, but angry, so, so angry with myself for not looking further into the house or Having code enforcement come and check out the house, that's something that we tell all these kids to do now, too, or their parents. If they're going off campus, make sure code enforcement comes and checks out this house. A lot of times you just tell the kids to do it. They don't want to do it because the landlord's going to say, I don't need you here. We don't want you here anymore. That's that's all they don't. It's all about dollars and cents. Greed is what it really is. Unless you report this house, that's when code enforcement comes in. I talked more about how local of an issue this is with Janet Maupin, the college town fire marshal. Actually, technically, her college town is two college towns. There's Champaign and there's Urbana, twin cities with a combined student population of 40,000. And that presents its own challenges. Uh, we all keep records differently. And a lot of times it's not that we, you know, try and withhold information. It's just hard to pull together from... For us, too, we don't have the um, best software. We have old, outdated software. The record-keeping is a, is a real problem. And it's easy for um, property owners to keep a lot of information private. Uh, the only information that is publicly accessible in Illinois is your tax records. So you can find out ownership by going through the tax assessor's records but you kind of have to know what you're looking for and, and how to go through that system. 
So it's not, it's really not easy to find out information. You have to go through the Freedom of Information Act requirements and, you know, dot a lot of I's and, and cross a lot of T's. You have to have everything perfectly correct, like the address, the PIN number, and um, everything like that. I think most people don't realize it's also a very local issue. The code enforcement is down to the township, borough council, city government level. And so, um, you know, if you end up crossing a road, you might end up in another township with completely different rules and like not even know it because you're not really from there, you know? Absolutely. And I can tell you from being a city employee all these years, the makeup of your local uh, jurisdiction, like our city council, is made up of people who make their living selling real estate or being landlords in this community. And, it, you know, part of the reason they run and get on the boards and commissions is they're protecting their investments. So, you know, we have people actively voting for certain codes and ordinances that I don't want to say line the pockets of landlords, but certainly keep the code uh, requirements down a bit. The people that own these homes are the wealthier people in these towns. And the wealthier people tend to be town officials in these towns. So are they going to police themselves? It's a very difficult situation. A lot of these towns wouldn't exist except for the colleges. That's what they thrive on, these colleges. The kids coming in and spending, I'm going to say it, mom and dad's money throughout the town. Renting places, spending money at, at food stores, just dumping money into the economy. A 2016 story by the student newspaper at Frostburg State in Maryland reported that students complaining to City Hall about poor conditions at off-campus housing were running into this very issue of a conflict of interest. The paper reported the mayor, Bob Flanagan, was the biggest landlord in town, owning 17 properties for a total of 136 rental units. And I just have to add, you know how they found that out? Public records requests. Yeah, when they work, they really work. Anyway, the students were pushing for a full-time inspector because more records that they received through records requests showed that 75% of rental properties in Frostburg were out of compliance with housing code, and the frequency of inspections had dropped sharply. All of the top violations were related to fire safety. No fire extinguisher, inadequate bedroom egress, faulty circuit breakers, missing smoke detectors, electrical system violations. The students at Frostburg put up a pretty big stink about this, forcing the mayor to admit that he understood their concerns, although standing by his claim that his properties were safe. But I just want to underscore what it took to get that far. The student newspaper filed multiple public records requests. It took several weeks to get the results, and even when the documents came, there were holes in them. They used the power of the pen to put pressure on the city to turn things over and answer demands. That kind of resource isn't available to any student or parent who is just trying to make a good decision before signing a 9- or 12-month commitment about where they're going to live. And not only is this often a data desert at the local level— It's also a data desert at the national level. I could find no group that tracks injuries from fire incidents in off-campus housing. Several groups track deaths, but they all have their own criteria, and so the numbers vary. 
The Center for Campus Fire Safety says, by its count, more than 130 people have died in 92 different fatal fires since 2000. Other estimates are as high as 153. All of them show that the vast majority happen in off-campus housing. Even the definition of off-campus housing has gone back and forth over the years that I've been a uh, part of the center. Statistically, what has to be turned in for a fire on campus now is is regulated much like the um, Clery Act for assaults and things like that. The Gene Clery Act is a federal law that requires universities to report crimes on campus. But that last part, on campus, a lot of things get lost because of that condition. Crimes that happen in neighboring towns or in off-campus student housing often don't get counted as part of the Clery Act, even though they affect students and reflect the campus environment. And Janet Maupin says that same loophole exists for fire safety, too. The definition of on versus off-campus housing uh, is different in different parts of the country. Like you were saying earlier, code enforcement varies so much from town to town from school to school, from state to state. Were you able to push for change after the fact? Were you successful? Or do you feel like you've been successful in the last, you know, eight years? I mean, we had a couple of laws passed um, right after Kerry passed away. State of New York, that every college and university must let you know whether or not there's fire sprinklers in your room. And then uh, a year later, two years later, every rental or lease in the state of New York have asked to let you know what kind of fire safety is in the place you're going to rent or, or lease. So that was a that was pretty two pretty big laws that were passed. I don't know how well they're being enforced. There's no way to tell. I think we've opened the eyes of a lot of parents. Some kids, like I said, kids are going to be kids, but the parents are kids. They're asking the questions now. The Fitzsimons family's push for change is not just about off-campus housing, even though that's where the majority of fatalities happen. Bob Fitzsimons wants universities to be held to a higher standard, too. And in his quest for more information about on-campus housing, he discovered another data desert. You'd be surprised how many campuses aren't sprinkled or partially sprinkled. I would say, I, I don't want to put a number to it, but... It's somewhere about half the campus in the United States aren't sprinkled. How do you know that? Again, I was very, very angry. He says he called dozens of campuses in the years following Carrie's death, questioning them about their fire safety measures. I called, I actually talked to a fire marshal. I'm not going to say what school. Um, I talked to a fire marshal and I said, listen, how many beds on campus? And he threw out a number. I'm just going to use a number of, uh, let's say, 500, but it was probably, you know, 10 times that. I said, how many rooms are sprinkled? And he just said, excuse me, what are you asking? I said, I want to know how many rooms are unprotected is what I'm asking. And the guy said, I can't talk to you anymore. He hung up on me. And that happened a few times. And not just in New York. I called different states, too, at that point. Again, I was extremely angry. And uh, I still am. But it all boils down to the almighty dollar. We don't have the money for that. We don't have the money for that. You Life work safety. in the business, though. I mean, can you tell yeah. me when they say we don't have the money, what kind of money are we talking about? In New York, it's probably, I, I guess, you know, to do a sprinkler system, probably $500 a head, something like that. 
And when you're going over, you know, square feet, so one sprinkler head usually covers 120 square feet. So it's a room. You need one, usually one sprinkler head per dorm room. It's not a ridiculous amount. And it's even cheaper as you get into the residential side because you don't have to have all the different sized uh, pipes. There's, there's a, a way they hydraulically calculate sprinkler heads. And when you get into residential sprinkler, it changes uh, drastically. We did some research, just to be sure. Here's Why Don't We Know associate producer Tori Whitten. His estimate was pretty close. In some places, dorms are a little bigger. I did the math and I found that it was fair to assume it would cost about $900 per room for a dorm building and $900 to $1,500 per bedroom in an off-campus house. Even if we are generous, like let's just be generous for a second and say it's $1,000 a room, right? Okay. You only have to do this once. It's not really like that's that's like no, 200%, right? Like it's not really that much money, especially for a state university, even if it's $1,000 a room. The bottom line is they save lives. You're... 85 to 90% more likely to walk out of a fire, a business or a house or that has fire sprinklers, 90% more likely to walk out of that than one that doesn't. I mean, the stats are uh, unbelievable. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen a side-by-side burn where they, they take a, a fabricated room and they'll, they'll do two rooms side-by-side and they'll light them up. One has uh, fire sprinklers, one doesn't. And you can see how quick the fire spreads. And if you watch this side by side, the fire is usually extinguished in, in seconds with the fire sprinkler. There's smoke still and all that, and, and that's a danger also. But you give these people a fighting chance to get out. It's a money thing. You know, somebody said, well, why, why does government have to tell me I have to put sprinklers in? Well, why does government tell you that you need a driver's license? And why does government tell you that you need, you know, this for that? It's just, it's something. It's safety. It's all about safety. It's it's a shame. My daughter, Carrie, should still be alive today, you know? What was her major? Um, she was pre-med. She wanted to be a doctor, save lives. She wanted to be a doctor to save lives, yeah. It's, uh, it's tough. And uh, the amount of people that have been affected by by her death and, and the two other kids, Eva Block and uh, Kevin Johnson, they were, they were great kids. They really were great kids. But you notice I keep saying kids. They were still kids. They were becoming young adults. But kids will be kids. You know, I, I mean, they're going to make mistakes. And I don't know if a mistake was made that night. Um, something happened. Um, like I said, we still don't know. We'll, we'll never know. Before the fire, Marist College had an online list of off-campus houses for students to reference. And the house Carrie lived in was one of them. The Fitzsimons family sued Marist College after the fire, alleging that it had a duty to make sure those houses were safe. The lawsuit was not successful, but it raises a point that Bob Fitzsimons brought up. Why direct students to third-party housing? Why not let them stay on campus? All these colleges are not-for-profits. Well, that's a load of crap. They're there to make money, and I can't believe how much endowments these these schools have. They're, you know, millions and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars that they have. Why not dump it into the infrastructure of the schools? Build more dorms so the kids don't have to live off campus. That, that's a whole other side of this argument that, I, that, that drives me crazy. How can you have, say, 2,000 beds and have 8,000 people in school? They should build more dorms. Build more dorms. That's after the break. 
We couldn't have made this podcast without research and reporting help from students at the University of Florida. You can help support them by making a donation to our Student Scholarship Fund. You can find the information on our website, www.whydontweknow.org. This is where the story takes a bit of a turn, away from safety hazards to another kind of hazard, a financial hazard. Did you know that many universities don't actually build or even own their own campus dorms? It was news to me. I had no idea that public universities' on-campus residence halls might be making money for a for-profit private company. In fact, this is a booming business. And when you start to think about it, it makes sense. In some ways, this is as close as it gets to an investment sure thing, especially because in some of these deals, public universities actually guarantee that they will find the renters, fill the beds. And even when that's not guaranteed contractually, it's still pretty likely that it'll work out. So if you're a developer, it's kind of like all you have to do is open up your pocket and let the rent money roll in more and more developers doing these projects. I talked about this with Jessica Wood, the sector leader for higher education at S&P Global Ratings. I think to put it in sort of the most black and white perspective, um, it seems like sort of a perfect marriage if you're building a dorm on a college campus and then you have a, a college or university that has strong demand and has had historically strong enrollment. Every year you have that um, you should have sort of that, you know, inflow of students looking for a place to live. One government document we found lays it out pretty nicely. The university will line up the financing for the for-profit company with tax-exempt bonds. Often those are backed by the university itself. And the university does all of your marketing and your bill collecting. So if a renter doesn't pay, the school can withhold registration or even a diploma. And it's good for the public university, too, because in many cases it helps them improve the look of their balance sheets. And it makes life easier, because they don't have to go the normal route of petitioning the legislature for cash to build new buildings. They can bypass all of that governmental red tape and just get that big, beautiful new quad quickly. It's more efficient from that standpoint, sort of that start to finish you know, having a re new residence hall built and filled, the start to finish is much, perhaps more efficient, more quickly achieved when going through a P3 rather than going down the route of issuing debt themselves. These deals are called public-private partnerships, or P3s. P3s work like this. The private for-profit company gets a bond, borrowing money from a public entity to finance the project. And then it's paid back over time in rent shares. Often on university land, and there's some sort of ground lease connecting the university and that project. And, and that's sort of the fundamental sort of def definition of that P3 agreement. We've seen growth in you know a variety of different P3s in the higher education space over the past sort of 20 years, I would say. We've seen growth there. We've seen, as you mentioned, we've seen quite a bit of activity in student housing, um, but you'll see there's some forms of P3s related to energy and utilities. You'll see other types of P3s as well. While building dorms may seem pretty dull and unexciting, actually, this has become really attractive to Wall Street investors. As I said before, it's a sure thing. Unless, 
A global pandemic unexpectedly shuts down campuses all across the country. This has led to some really sad stories of parents and students getting stuck with leases of tens of thousands of dollars or more and private companies who won't release them from their obligations. But also, even before COVID-19, there were signs of trouble. In January of 2020, the Wall Street Journal called it a party that may be over, citing the fact that universities didn't stop building housing units when rising tuition costs began flattening the 1990s enrollment boom. I think that's why we've seen over the past few years, we've seen some as more and more projects have been built and we've seen some geared towards upperclassmen that perhaps have more choice uh, to live off campus. And we've seen some run into lower occupancy than projected. In some cases, universities overestimated what students would pay for nice new buildings with lots of amenities. So you've got a new residence hall, maybe geared towards upper class with a pool or whatever it is, all these different amenities. And of course, you know, the more amenities, the larger the residence hall, et cetera, the more expensive it is to build. Um, and, the, you know, the more beds there are to fill. The cost to live there was maybe more than students wanted to pay. So we had, we've seen some projects run into um, trouble from that perspective. At the same time, over the past couple of years, We've also seen um, demographics across the nation impacting university enrollments. We've seen some struggling with enrollment or enrollment declines, and that can also, at the end of the day, enrollment drives housing occupancy, and so we've seen that have some impact. Moody's Credit Ratings reports that student housing now accounts for 40% of defaults in the multifamily sector. Meanwhile, it's only 6% of loans. According to S&P Global, which rates the stability of these bonds, there are currently 63 of these P3s involving U.S. universities, and as of March of 2020, only six of them had a rating on the A scale. That's less than 10 percent. And to give some perspective, our average rating for a higher education institution for a college or university, our average rating is an A for, say, a public university or a private university. The worst are at the University of Oklahoma and at Texas A&M University, where a $361 million bond, Moody's downgraded to junk status. So we have it currently on triple C negative. I think what happened here is, you know, you had a couple of new housing projects put up on a college campus within a few years of each other, and they were significant in size. This project was 3,400 new beds. So it wasn't replacement beds. It was new beds. And um, it looks like in fall 17, uh, they had 54% occupancy. Uh, a much weaker occupancy can um, can really weaken the, the overall project's cash flows quite quickly because these projects are structured and projected with sort of a, like a 95% occupancy rate at opening. If they open well short of that, then there's a huge revenue shortfall to begin the life of the project. And then you have an expense base that there's probably not a ton of flexibility on. And so then your, your net operating income, um, if it starts out weaker than expected, there's not a lot of way to really build that up. It's not like you can suddenly in the, you know, it's not like in a residence hall, you can have 50% occupancy in one year and make it up the next year with 200% occupancy. You just can't do it unless you, quadruple every room, which is not what students are looking for. Texas A&M enacted a must-live-on-campus policy to try to remedy it, but it's unclear if it will help. 
what happened for this project is they breached their minimum debt service coverage covenant. And while occupancy did improve, the project just wasn't able to fully recover. At the University of Oklahoma, a similar scenario has gotten particularly nasty. Luxury housing owners in Norman sending a letter to OU saying... There, a flagship housing project for upperclassmen was not as popular as anticipated. The company at the center of a lawsuit with the university. With only 30% occupancy, the developer sued the university, saying it misrepresented student demand. Remember, this was all pre-COVID, although COVID certainly made a lot of it worse. For example, the University of Central Florida was forced to use federal pandemic stimulus money to pay the rent at two private apartment buildings after students fled campus in the spring. As the Orlando Sentinel pointed out, federal stimulus money meant for students, ultimately benefiting the building owners. At the University of Maryland, students and parents were left on the hook with thousands of dollars in year-long rental bills after the private owner of the campus dorms refused to let them out of their leases. And the online publication Inside Higher Ed reports that a Rhode Island-based developer named Corvius has been accused of pushing universities to reopen campus this fall in order to make sure that occupancy in their buildings remains high. This is how all of this gets us back to the heart of the main question. Why don't we know? When privatization creeps into governmental space, we as taxpayers lose the ability to make sure our money is being well spent, well managed. It allows for misuse and abuse. Like at Wichita State, where the university shut down on-campus dorms to force students into private ones that weren't filling up. Student reporters started digging into why and unraveled a rat's nest of insider deals. It turns out a university regent owned a stake in those private dorms. This whole area is super lightly regulated. There's no meaningful oversight. And the structure of these P3s, it can be like a Russian nesting doll. LLCs inside of LLCs inside of LLCs, making it a real challenge to find out who is actually making money and whether there is any corruption. In the last few episodes, we have focused heavily on this privatization creep. How a space that is supposed to be public is becoming less and less open, whether it be through private portals to hide documents. You know, we don't really have possession of it. Or private foundations to hide activity and influence. I can't get a glimpse into these operations. Or here as a way to avoid governmental red tape. The main theme for part one of this season has been secrecy, intentionally hiding information. Privacy, that's a little different. Part two of season one is about privacy. Privacy at times is a right and a well-deserved one at that, but some American universities are using privacy as a weapon in order to keep things secret. A little-known law called the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA, is central to how universities fight in the battle over what is truly private and what is simply secret. 
FERPA is the focus of part two of our season, which will begin next time. In the meantime, we're adding a bonus episode on secrecy and coronavirus, and how government agencies across the board are taking advantage of this health emergency to keep critically important information from the public by, you guessed it, ignoring or manipulating open records laws. Don't forget to check it out. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, with additional reporting by Brittany Miller and Tori Whitten, who is the associate producer. This episode was edited and mixed by James Sullivan. Music for this episode was composed by Daniel Townsend. The executive producer of Why Don't We Know is Frank Lamonti. Why Don't We Know is a production of the Bruckner Center for Freedom of Information at the University of Florida. A special thanks to the Hearst Family Foundation for providing the grant money that supported this reporting. For more information, please visit our website at www.whydontweknow.org.